You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to read together these first ten verses, and then we will pray. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we come to your word because it is our hopeful expectation that you will sanctify us by your truth, that you, by the power of your spirit, will use your word to encourage us and and comfort us and equip us. We pray that through this example, a bad example at that of, of Judas, that we would learn the dangers of covetousness and the dangers of hypocrisy. Teach us through your word today, we pray, and that our hearts would be receptive and open to the truth, that we might live obediently before you in humility and in meekness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our time in the Gospel of John has been a bit sporadic over the course of the last month. Uh, we took a break for the for Christmas, the, day, the Sunday before Christmas and uh, Christmas Eve, uh, between John 11 and John 12, to look at Luke chapter 2, and then we had one Sunday in John 12, 1 through 3. And then Dave Belts filled in for me last week to give me a chance to spend some time with my family over the holidays, which I'm very grateful for. So now we are at the beginning of a new year, jumping right back into the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter and the 4th verse. And this is, in case you're curious, our 200th sermon in the Gospel of John. Now I know that sounds like a lot. Okay, it's a lot. But it doesn't seem like that many, does it? Okay, maybe it does seem like that many. Dave, Dave shook his head, maybe it is 200. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And just by way of review, because it was two weeks ago that we covered the first uh, three verses here, this is, uh, we need to make sure that we understand the context here because Judas's reaction, uh, Judas is reacting to what goes on in verses one through three. So here are just a couple of things to remember about the first three verses in this passage in, in particular. There are, remember, two anointings of Jesus, at least two of them. Uh, there is one that Luke records in Luke chapter 7. It happened early in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, John is recording one that takes place later in Jesus' ministry, the final week of his life in Bethany. Uh, the details are different, and the, uh, the, the people who are there are different. The location is different. All of it is so different that we are forced to conclude that Luke is talking about one anointing early on. John is describing another. And you'll also remember that there are uh, there is an anointing spoken of in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record an anointing. Luke is recording one, and I am under the conviction that Matthew, Mark, and John are recording a different one. There are differences in their accounts. 
There are differences in the details, but I believe that all of those differences can and are nicely harmonized. And as we're going through John, I'm, this passage in John, I'm seeking to do that. I'm seeking to try and take some of the differences between the different gospel writers and harmonize them or understand them in a way that we're getting a, a fuller and more robust picture of what happened at this anointing in the house, uh, in this house in Bethany. The second thing to remember is that there is nothing unique about anointing the feet of somebody in that culture. It's unique or, or odd in our culture, but not in their culture. Therefore, we, we shouldn't conclude that it's unlikely that this type of anointing happened more than once. It's completely natural that we would expect this to happen not just once and not just twice, but maybe several times. There may have been more times than just the two that are mentioned in the Gospels where Jesus' feet were washed and anointed with perfume. Um, so it's not a unique thing in itself, but there are a couple of things about it that make it unique. One of the things that makes this incident unique is the lavishness of what was poured out on Jesus. It was the cost of the perfume, 300 denarii, Judas says that it is worth. And there's no reason to doubt his, his estimation of its value. Usually people who are money savvy and uh, uh, money grubbing have a, a, an acute ability to place a value on something and to get it pretty close. When she poured out that oil, Judas knew exactly how much it was worth, 300 denarii. He knew that. We could have sold it for that amount because that's all he's thinking about. So this is a lavish display of her, her affection for Jesus, and it is really an expression of her value that she places on Jesus. So it's an act of worship. Um, it's, it, in the eyes of everybody at this event, this was over the top. It was uncalled for. It was inexcusable, unjustified. This was such a lavish display of her love and her affection for Christ, and not in any kind of sensual way, don't think of that, but the type of love that we would have for Jesus. It was such a lavish expression of her value of Christ and her love for Him that it caught the attention of everybody there and raised the ire of not only Judas, but as we'll see in a moment, of others that were there as well. The second thing that makes this unique is the expression of humility that Mary gave to Jesus when she wiped His feet with her hair. In those days, feet were not clean, our feet, even if you took your shoes and socks off right now, would be clean compared to feet in those days. They wore sandals, they were exposed to the elements, they were exposed to the dirt and dust. And for her to bow down at his feet and to dry his feet with her hair was an expression of such love and humility and sacrifice and humbleness and meekness before him. It is as if she just laid down prostrate and humbled herself. And that is another thing that marks this as a unique incident. So with all of that in view, I mentioned that in the first 11 verses or 10 verses of of John 12 here, there are really five people and their reactions and their actions are given. And we looked last time in verses 1 to 3 at the service of Martha and the sacrifice of Mary. And now today we're going to turn to the selfishness of Judas. And then down in verses 9, 10, and 11, we have the shallow seeking of the crowd and the scheming of the religious leaders. But we're just looking today at the selfishness of Judas in verses 4 through 8. The first thing we notice is how Judas is contrasted with Martha and Mary. Martha, you remember, was serving, serving the table. It may not have even been her house that she was at, but she pitched in, and, and even though she was a woman likely of means and her family had, would, would have had servants of their own, she jumped in and became a servant in the face of Christ at his table, waiting on him, serving. That was an act of her, it was an expression of her love and her affection for Christ. Mary did something different, which was more like her temperament. She sacrificed and poured out the vial of costly perfume. That was an expression of her love and her affection and sacrifice for Christ. Both of these women, these two sisters, are both expressing their affection for Christ and their value, uh, how he values or how they valued him, his worthiness. So for both women, even in according to their own temperament, they are expressing how they value Jesus, enough to serve him, enough to sacrifice for him. But Judas, 
verse 4. Now Judas is contrasted with the service and sacrifice of Martha and Mary, and, and, and he is the darkness against which their act of sacrifice and service is contrasted. Verse 4, we're given some details about Judas, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, that seems like a very noble thing for Judas to say. Uh, verse 4, there are three details about Judas that are given. His name, Judas Iscariot, that he was a disciple, and that he was the one who would betray Jesus. Those are the three details that John gives us. I'm going to do something with Judas. We are going to save a fuller biographical study of Judas for later on in John's Gospel, because Judas appears again in chapter 13 and again in chapter 18. When we get to chapter 13, we are really going to look at Judas, everything about Judas, because there is a lot that can be learned from Judas. Judas is a great example to us, but not in a good way. Judas is an example in a bad way. He's what you don't want to be like. Just in case you're curious, he's what you don't want to be like. So we're going to save a real full understanding of Judas, a real full look at Judas, for in chapter 13 when we study the, his act of betrayal, what he is most known for. But today we're just going to look at these three details. His name, the fact that he was a disciple, and the fact that he was the betrayer of Jesus. And then we're going to look at his covetous heart that is expressed in verses uh, 5 and verse 6. So Judas Iscariot, that is his name. The name Judas itself was not a unique or, or an odd or uncommon name. It was a kind of a common name. In fact, there was even another disciple who was named Judas. In John 14, verse 22, there is a Judas who was one of Jesus' disciples. But John says Judas, but not Iscariot, not to be confused with the other Judas. So even among the twelve, there were two men named Judas. So that was a common name. The name Iscariot comes from, it's actually a combination of two words, um, ish, meaning from or of, and Kerioth, which was the name of a town in southern Judea. So Judas was Judas Ish Kerioth, or from Kerioth. And if he was from a town in southern Israel, then he is the only one of the disciples that we know of that was not from the northern region of Galilee. So he was in that way different than all of the other disciples. So Iscariot means from Kerioth. He is the Judas from Kerioth, or Ishkariot. Uh, Judas Iscariot is known as the betrayer, and he is obviously one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus chose him as a disciple because Jesus knew that he was going to betray him and that G Judas would be the one to fulfill all the prophecies concerning Jesus. So John makes mention of the fact that Judas is, his name gives his full name there. If you had the King James Version, you might notice that it has the notation that he is the son of Simon. Or if you have the New King James, you'll notice that it says son of Simon or Simon's son. But none of the newer translations, the NASB, the ESV, the NIV, none of those have that notation there. What's going on there? Why does the King James include that he is the, the son of Simon? Uh, Simon itself is not an uncommon name either. In fact, you can think of all kinds of Simons in the New Testament. There's uh, Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Tanner, Simon Peter, um, Simon Judas's son, uh, uh, Judas's father, and Simon the leper. So there's at least five, and I think there's a couple other Simons mentioned. Everybody was named Simon in the New Testament. Very common name. And some have suggested that since Matthew and Mark say that this anointing happened in the house of Simon the leper, that maybe Simon the leper was Judas's father. Now that's not likely for a number of reasons. First, because Simon was a common name. Second, if it was Simon the leper who was Judas's father, probably Matthew or Mark would have mentioned that, or John, especially in this context, since John kind of zeroes in on Judas. Uh, also, this happened in Bethany, not in Kerioth. So if this was in Simon's house who was Judas's father, likely it would have happened in Kerioth, but it didn't. It happened in Simon the leper's house who happened to live in Bethany. So Judas is the son of Simon, but it's not the same Simon in whose house this is happening. Why does the King James have Simon's, uh, Judas Simon's son or the son of Simon and the new translations don't? That comes down to a difference of the, trans, of the 
the manuscripts from which the translations come. The Texas Receptus is sort of the school of manuscripts from which the King James, the New King James are translated. Those are a later, a later group of manuscripts. Probably this is a scribal gloss that is not in earlier manuscripts, or at least the manuscript family that the NASB and the newer translations uh, are translated from. So it just has to do with a difference in the two text families from which the translations are derived. So that's why the King James has it and the New King, sorry, the NASB does not. Likely the, the, dif- the, the difference itself or the notation itself is insignificant because even if we don't have this, we're told in John 6 and we're told in John 13 that Simon was Judas's father. All right. All of that aside, here is the second detail concerning Judas, that he was a disciple, that he was a disciple. Now, that does not mean he was a believer. Jesus, from the beginning, chose him knowing that Judas would betray him. And Jesus said in John 6, one of you is a devil. And he was speaking of Judas. John makes mention of that. So the fact that he was a disciple does not mean that he was a believer. That is not a commentary on the condition of Judas's heart. It is a designation of the office that he held not whether or not he was a believer. This simply means that he was part of the inner circle. He was one of the twelve. He was one of those chosen by Jesus. Jesus chose him for the purpose of fulfilling the prophecies concerning one who would lift up his heel against the Son of Man and betray him for 30 pieces of silver. So it just means that he was one of that inner inner twelve, uh, inner circle. His act, as one of the inner circle, his act of betrayal is so noteworthy that every time the New Testament writers mention him, they mention his act of betrayal. And this is the third thing that John mentions. He was the one who was intending to betray Jesus. His betrayal, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, is the singular thing about Judas Iscariot that marks him forever. So much so that his act of betrayal is synonymous with his name. His name is actually synonymous with betrayal. Isn't that right? If I say to you, you are a Judas, you don't say, oh, he must mean I'm a follower of Jesus, because Judas was a follower of Jesus. You don't say that. You understand exactly what I mean. You are a backstabbing, friend-denying betrayer of all things good. That's what Judas's name means. This, his act of betrayal is so defining that every time the New Testament gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every time they mention Judas, they mention either the fact that he was the betrayer of Jesus, or they call him a traitor or a devil, or they describe his actual act of betrayal. They could not think of Judas apart from his betrayal of the Son of God. Now, I have an interesting book on my shelf. It's given to me about, I'm going to say, 12 years ago. I've never read it because I could tell from the outside of the book that I was not interested in reading it. In fact, it sits on a shelf. If you've ever been in my office, you know there's one shelf that's got the word wacky on it. And I have a whole bunch of wacky books that go on that shelf. This, this book is like number one on the wacky uh, shelf in my office. And the title of the book is Judas, Betrayer or Friend of Jesus? Question mark. Judas, betrayer or friend of Jesus. Now, it's written by a liberal college professor who taught at a liberal Bible college and probably today pastors a liberal church and is still himself a liberal. And here's the gist of the book. That Judas was not really the betrayer of Jesus. He was a friend of Jesus. In fact, he was Jesus' closest confidant. And what Jesus gave Judas to do was Jesus told Judas to go to the religious leaders and to present Jesus as the Messiah to the religious leaders. And Judas went to do this. But things went south in this deal, and it wasn't Judas's fault. He wasn't trying to do this. Everything just went south in presenting Jesus to the religious leaders as, as the Messiah of Israel. And as things happened, Jesus didn't foresee it. Judas didn't foresee it. But Jesus ended up dying on a cross. And years later, when the Gospel writers went to write the stories about Jesus, that's your indication right there, there's stories, write the stories about Jesus, they needed a villain. Every good story needs a good villain. 
And so they sort of put this moniker on Judas that he was the betrayer of Jesus and uh, he becomes the villain in the story when in actuality that's not what happened at all. Now, let me give you a piece of culinary advice. You can take that book and put it between two pieces of bread and make yourself a bologna sandwich because that's what it is. It is a bologna sandwich. There's nothing in that book that is redeemable or redeeming. But if you turn into the History Channel anytime around Easter time, you will find some liberal scholar on the History Channel who has more time than he has common sense arguing that Judas was not the betrayer of Jesus, but that he was the friend of Jesus. Now why, other than because of a total disrespect for Scripture and a total not caring for what the text says, why would anybody want to remake Judas into a good guy? I don't understand that. Scripture repeatedly calls him the betrayer, the traitor, the devil. He is the villain of the story because he was the villain of the story. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. All right, verse 5. That's what we know about Judas from this passage. Verse 5, now he speaks. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now what Judas is speaking here is the overflow of his heart. And this might sound noble on the face of it. Why was this money, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? That sounds so noble, doesn't it? That sounds so compassionate. It sounds so caring to care for the poor like that, to be concerned for the the right use of, of God's resources that God has given to this woman. It sounds so noble, but that's not in fact what Judas was saying at all. Well, that's what he said, but that's not what he was intending at all. When Judas said this, his heart, his mouth was speaking out of the overflow of a covetous, wicked, greedy heart. Because John tells us Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor. He wasn't concerned about the poor at all. In fact, he said this because he had the money box and he was the one who used to oversee what was put into it and what went out of it, and he was pilfering or taking away some of the money that was put into the money box for Jesus and his ministry. That's why Judas said what he did. So it's not a noble statement that he makes. It is actually the expression of his covetous heart. His heart is so greedy and so covetous, and he is so involved and wrapped up in his sin of theft and deception and hypocrisy that when Judas saw what was happening in front of him, he had to speak. Sometimes your mouth is like a like the vent on a pressure cooker or like the vent on the side of a hot water heater. Sometimes it just has to burst forth and express what is in the heart. And that is exactly what Judas does here. He is simply stating what was in his heart. But here's the interesting thing. Judas was not the only one at this meal that was thinking this way or that was uh, feeling this way because Matthew and Mark, I think it's Matthew who says the disciples were expressing this. There was more than one. And Mark says that some, doesn't say it was disciples, just said some. So we are left to conclude that there are more than one disciple who is thinking this, and there's not just disciples who are thinking this at this dinner, but Judas seems to be the one who is the spokesman for this. Now, it's not that everybody there had access to the money, and it's not that everybody there was going to steal what was put into the money box. Only Judas did that. But Judas was not the only one thinking this way. Judas was not the only one reasoning about this lavishness and that this was a waste and that it would have been better used. But Judas is the one who expresses it. And Judas is the one who expresses it because his heart is covetous and he really wants to state what, what he thinks should be the good use of this money. So Judas speaks and he says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a klepto. And that's actually the, a form of the word that was used there. He was a klepto and the word is thief. And it doesn't mean the type of thief who comes in with guns blazing in broad daylight, stealing openly so that everybody sees him and can stop him. The word refers to a sneak thief. Somebody who just grabs and takes while nobody is looking and it's quiet and it's subtle and nobody can see it. Judas was a klepto who was taking the money out of the money box. And the money box would have been 
the receptacle or maybe even a bag. It's a bit unclear what that might be referring to, but a bag in which money was put for the common good for all of the disciples. And as Jesus went from town to town, women and people in his uh, in the vicinity would give and contribute to him to fund him and to support him. He didn't have a job. The disciples didn't have jobs that contributed to these means. So the money was collected for all 12 of them. Judas was responsible for the disbursements. He was the treasurer. Now, who made Judas keeper of the coin? I don't know who made Judas keeper of the coin, but it was a bad decision because he was taking money out of the money box and stealing it for himself. How much money did Judas take over that period of time? He had three years to do this. I hope that we find that out in heaven because that's a little curiosity thing that I'm, I'm curious to find out. How much money did he skim off of this during this whole, during the whole ministry and time that he was with Jesus? Now Judas is ripe, ripe with lessons for us. I'm going to offer you quickly six lessons that we learn from the, from Judas's example here. Number one, we learn how easy it is for spiritual frauds to remain undetected. How easy it is for spiritual frauds to remain undetected. Judas was with Jesus and the rest of the disciples for almost three years. These men, the other eleven, entrusted him with the money. So Judas, outwardly at least, had to appear faithful, reliable, dependable, honest, and at least as pious as the most pious of the other disciples. They trusted Judas with this, with, with the money. And Judas traveled with them, and they ate with him, and they slept in the same house as him, and they got to know him, and they ministered with him, and taught with him, and walked around with him, and they visited with him, and none of the disciples ever picked up that Judas was a fraud. None of them did. In fact, when Jesus told them, one of you will betray me, not a single one in that room said, oh, it must be Judas. I've suspected him all along. Not one of them said that. Every one, last one of them said, is it I, Lord? Is it I? They suspected themselves over Judas. Nobody thought it was Judas. Nobody was the wiser that this man was a devil. And that he was a deceiver and a hypocrite all along. How easy it is for spiritual hypocrites to remain undetected. Matthew Henry in his commentary on the Gospel of John says, It is possible for the worst of men to lurk under the disguise of the best profession. And there are many who pretend to stand in relation to Christ who really have no kindness for Him at all. And that's true. It is possible for people to remain a spiritual hypocrite and to put on a facade, which, which Judas did, and to put on a show of spirituality and pious behavior, and all the while remain completely unconverted. The second thing we learn from Judas is that there is a lesson here about the danger of false belief. A lesson here about the danger of false belief. We've talked about false belief all the way through the Gospel of John. We saw fake believers in John 2, fake believers in John 6, fake believers in John 8, and fake believers in John 10. And we are warned over and over again, John has been in his Gospel contrasting True believers with false believers. And we are warned with the bad example of false believers and we are given the evidence of true saving faith. And John, as he is warning us over and over again about false believers, now we have an example of a false believer. Judas is the poster boy for fake belief. He's the poster boy for false faith. You want to know what false faith looks like? You look at Judas. Here was a man who covered over his guile and his covetousness and his hatred for the Son of God. Nobody suspected him. He dwelt with the others under the cloak of his of his good deeds and his good talking, and all the time he remained completely unconverted. Judas is a perfect example of the type of false belief that John has been warning us about all the way through his gospel. Third thing we learn from Judas is an important lesson about the nature, danger, and power of hypocrisy. The nature and the danger and the power of hypocrisy. This is what hypocrisy does. Judas 
Think of it this way. Judas sat and listened to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus addressed the issue of the heart. Judas sat and listened to Jesus' sermons on giving, on greed, on covetousness, on love of money, on heaven, on hell. Judas sat and listened to Jesus give kind offers of salvation and invitations to repentance and to command men to believe. Judas sat and listened to Jesus offer the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and describe the realities of heaven and the realities of hell and judgment. Judas sat and listened to all of that. And not only that, but Judas watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. He watched him walk on water and calm the storm and make the dead to live and the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the lame to walk. Judas watched all of that, feeding the 5,000, caring for people, compassion. Judas watched all of that. He had the office of a disciple and he was entrusted by all of those men with their money. He watched all of that. He heard all of that and he remained completely unconverted because position and office and privileges cannot convert anybody. Judas watched all of that and listened to all of that and he remained just as hardened and unconverted as the most hardened Pharisee in the city of Jerusalem. That is stunning. That is the stunning power of hypocrisy. Now what if you are a hypocrite? And you think you're saved, but you're actually not. Can you know if you're saved if you're actually not? Or sorry, can you know if you're not saved when you think you are, but you might not be? If you're a hypocrite and you're living under the guise of just pious-sounding words and pious-looking life, and you're putting on a show, the only hope for you is to repent. You have to repent. And you have to trust Christ for salvation. And you have to believe upon Him. Because spiritual hypocrisy will do to any one of us what it would do to Judas. It will send us into a Christless eternity. Because putting on an outward show is not enough to save anyone. And your privileges that you have been born into and your privileges that you have enjoyed cannot convert you. Only the sovereign grace of God can regenerate your heart and convert you. And that's what Judas needed in his hypocrisy. The fourth thing we learn from Judas is a lesson about the danger of covetousness. First Timothy 6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The dangerous, the dangerous nature of covetousness. Could there be any more, uh, any more powerful example than what the love of money does than Judas? Here was a man who was willing to betray his master, a man who had been gracious to him for three years, and not only betray him, but betray all of the men whom he had served with and sacrificed with and uh, shared fellowship and communion with for all of those years. He was willing to leave all of that and betray it for the love of money. In fact, some have suggested that it might have been the love of money that got Judas into following Jesus to begin with. What was it about Jesus that attracted Judas? That he was standing there when Jesus chose out the twelve. What was it about Jesus that attracted Judas to that band? It might have been that Judas saw the miracles and he realized, hey, if this man's claiming to be the Messiah and he can do miracles like this, and he is here to usher in the kingdom, and it is going to be a kingdom of peace and prosperity, what better position to be in in that kingdom than to be the treasurer of the king? Right? To be the treasurer of a whole nation. Maybe it was his covetousness that attracted him to Jesus because he saw an opportunity for financial profit. Some have suggested that it was the covetousness of Judas that caused him to betray Jesus to begin with. And by that we mean not that he was upset that they didn't sell the perfume and give the money to the poor, but that Ju this was Judas's intention all along. Matthew Henry suggests this, that maybe at this meal Judas saw the opportunity to fill the coffers full of money as full as he could and then to abscond with it right away. And that really Judas's intention was to simply take the treasury all the money that was given to Jesus, and in the midst of all the busyness of the Passover to simply sneak away and leave with all of the money and take all of it from them. But that when he sat at this, at this meal and he saw the woman pour out the expensive vial of perfume, he realized, having heard Jesus talk about the difficulties that were to come and his impending death, 
and what the, we're going to do to him in Jerusalem. The Judas got that and he realized, this is my chance. I can take off with all of it. But then when that didn't materialize and the 300 bucks was wasted, he realized this little bit that I have in the coffers is not much. I might as well take what I can get and then leave. And he knew that the religious leaders were wanting somebody on the inside to betray Jesus and to give away his location so that they could arrest him. And Judas saw the opportunity. If I can't get 300 denarii, I can at least get 30 pieces of silver. I'll take what I can and I'll be gone. That's the power of covetousness. There's something else about covetousness and a covetous heart. And we see it here in Judas's response. And that is that it blinds the eyes of the covetous to the true value of things that are valuable. We often say that the things that are truly valuable are the things that money cannot buy. Have you ever heard that or said that? Of course you have. Things that are really valuable are the things that money cannot buy. Those who are covetous cannot understand that at all. Because the covetous are blinded to the true value of things that are truly valuable. Because all they see in anything is money. They look at anything and they think, how much can I sell this for? How much can I get for myself? How much can I get for this? What can I do with this that can make me money? All they see in everything and everyone is a chance to profit. Covetous blinded, covetousness blinded Judas to the value of Christ. He was the most valuable person, the most valuable being in all of the universe, the Son of God incarnate, at this meal. And what did Judas say? What did Judas see? All he could see was the money that was wasted on him. And his covetousness blinded Judas's eyes to things that were truly valuable. That's what covetousness does. Because the covetous individual just simply wants to know how something can be used to benefit themselves or for their own profit. And so they are blinded to the things that are really worthy and have worth. And instead, they all they see is money. That's what we learned from Judas. There's a fifth thing. Judas masked his treachery with a guise of good intentions. Judas masked his treachery with a guise of good intentions. He didn't just come out and say, look guys, hey, I've been stealing from the treasury. I've been absconding with stuff off of here, pilfering it for three years now, and I was really hoping to use this money to sort of pave my way for the rest of my life. I was planning to take this and just leave. Judas doesn't say that. What does he do? Oh, I'm concerned about the poor. It's the poor I care about, really. And it sounds so noble, doesn't it? To to mask over his covetousness and his greed and his wicked heart, to, to, to cloak that over with a, a cloak of good intentions and compassion. And he sounds so compassionate and so gentle and so kind, and I'm just caring about others. Even in our own day, the most egregious of wickedness will be excused or tolerated under the cloak of doing good to the poor. In fact, the mask or the cloak of doing good to the poor, that has been used to mask over all kinds of theft from the public treasury. You ever notice it? And people will excuse it as long as you stand in front of the television cameras and say, I did this because I was concerned about the poor. Oh, okay. That's what Judas is doing. He's really cloaking over his own theft under the, the guise of being concerned about the poor. When in actuality, he is not concerned about the poor at all. He's only concerned about his own pocketbook. And the sixth thing we learn about Judas is how covetousness can spoil such a beautiful event. How covetousness can spoil such a beautiful event. Here you have this act of worship. It is, it is honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is glorious. It was humbling. Uh, it, it, was, it was perfect in its beauty, this expression, this lavish expression of love. And the whole event was soured and spoiled and soiled by the covetous remark of this one man. A wet blanket just fell upon the whole thing when Judas said what he said. Scripture is right when it says that one sinner can destroy much good. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 1 says, Dead flies make perfumer's oil stink, 
So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. All it takes is one worldly fool and their wicked, covetous statement to spoil and soil such a beautiful event. And here was an act of worship that just went south and the whole thing became almost memorable because of this one wicked statement by this wicked fool, Judas. Those are the things that we learn about Judas. Now I want you to look at Jesus' rebuke. And time is running away, so we've got to move on to verse 7. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now that's kind of a short statement that John gives there. It's not nearly as full of, a, of an accounting of what was said as Matthew and Mark give us. I'm going to read to you Matthew and Mark's account real quick. Listen to the detail that they give because John, in his brevity, kind of becomes a little bit unclear for us in our understanding of his language. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Now here's what Mark gives. Mark says, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now that is quite a bit of a lengthier accounting of what Jesus said in rebuke to Judas, and it is a pointed rebuke. Jesus, Jesus is intending to rebuke Judas for this statement in front of everybody else who was there, and everybody else in there who would get, would, everybody else who was there would get the point of what Jesus was saying. It is a strong rebuke to Judas, and, and understand that it's strong. Jesus says to her, this woman, and to, or to all who were there, to Judas, about this woman, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? Hands off. Shut your mouth. Why do you even speak? What she has done is a good thing. Now John in his brevity kind of becomes a little bit unclear. We can still kind of get the sense of it from John, but there seems to be an ellipsis in here. In other words, John seems to leave out some words for effect and leaves us to fill in the meaning of verses nine, uh, verses 7 and 8. What Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, what, what Jesus was not saying was that she has kept some of this oil for his burial. Some have understood it that way, that she poured out the oil, Judas objected, and Jesus said, hold on, she hasn't poured all of it out, she has kept some of it for the day of my burial. That's not true because Matthew and Mark say she broke the alabaster vial and poured all of it out on Jesus as an anointing. So she didn't keep back any of it. What John seems to be saying, or what Jesus seems to be saying, is this, leave her alone. It's for my burial. And there's brevity there, and there's shortness there. Matthew and Mark and John all mention that this anointing had a symbolism beyond what Mary was intending. That this was an anointing for burial, and Jesus is pointing to that. Now, did Mary think that what she was doing was anointing him for burial? Did Mary understand that? I don't think Mary did get that. I think that Mary is very much like Caiaphas in the sense that back in chapter 11, Caiaphas said something that he didn't understand the full import of his words. When Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die than that the whole nation perish, we look at what Caiaphas said and we say, well, that's truer than Caiaphas thought it was. That is true on a whole other level. But Caiaphas didn't realize that. What Mary is doing, she is anointing him. She is doing it as an act of worship and adoration and a value that she is placing upon him in humility and thankfulness to him. Mary didn't understand the full import of what she is doing. But from the perspective of God and from the perspective of Jesus, Jesus is saying what she is doing is not just what she is doing. What she is doing is actually anointing me for burial. Now, here's the key with the burial part of it. Burial in that culture and that custom involved perfume and spices and anointing oils and all of those smelly, aromatic, arab, 
the smelly stuff that they would put on the bodies for the sake of masking over the odor of decay. In a warm, dry environment like that, bodies would begin to decay very quickly. So they would oftentimes bury bodies with lavish amounts, copious amounts of spices and perfumes and oils and ointments to mask over that decay until the flesh had decayed enough that the smell wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be so overwhelming. If Mary had done this for Jesus' dead body, nobody would have objected. You see, that's the point. If she had waited seven days and poured this out on his dead body after they pulled it off the cross, nobody would have objected. They would have said, all right, yeah. We, we bury people with expensive oils and perfumes. We, we lavish spices and perfumes and oils upon them to do that. And that's part of the point. Jesus is essentially saying, I am as good as dead. And what she is doing is portraying what you are going to be doing to me seven days from now. You see, in seven days, almost to the hour, they would be pulling his body off of the cross at evening. And they would be preparing it to be put into a borrowed tomb. And Jesus is saying, I am as good as dead. What she has done is merely looking forward to my burial. And she has done this in anticipation of the fact that I am going to die. And Jesus mentions his death here because in reality, that is what this whole event looks forward to. It's part of the symbolism and the significance. It was anticipating what he would do in only seven days. He knew that. Nobody else in the room understood that. But looking back on it, they most certainly would later on. Now look at his rebuke in verse 8. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It's an issue of priorities. Where are your priorities? You always have the poor. You're always going to have the poor with you. Seven days from now, you won't have me, but you will still have poor people. And 15 days now, two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, 15 years, 50 years from now, you will always have poor people with you. But you will not always have me. The issue is one of priority. What was the most important thing at that moment to do with this oil? To honor Jesus by pouring it out on him or to sell it and give it to the poor people? What was the most important thing to do? What was the most valuable or worthwhile use of that oil? It is to pour it out on Jesus. Why? Because he's far more valuable. And so really the issue is not whether what she did was foolish or wise. The issue is what was the best use of what she did in this moment with that perfume? The best use of that perfume was to pour it out on him. Why? You'll always have poor people. She'll not always have me. And Jesus is looking forward to the fact that he was leaving. He was going to die. And the time to honor him was shorter than those at that table were realizing. They weren't thinking in terms of a week. They were thinking in terms of months and years and maybe eternity. They, this is the Messiah that they have. He would rule forever on the throne of David. They're not looking forward to any kind of a death. They're not anticipating that. What are they looking forward to? They're looking forward to eternity spent with this one and, and never having death and the curse being lifted and all of the stuff that the Old Testament prophets look forward to. That's what they're anticipating. They're anticipating that. They're not thinking in terms of death. And Jesus is saying, you don't always have me. And so while I am here, you must honor me the way that she has honored me. There are times when it is right to do good to the poor. And Jesus is not disparaging doing good to the poor. He did good to the poor. It is good for us to do good to the poor. But we need to keep this in mind. Doing good to the poor is not the gospel. And there are times when doing good to the poor actually can dishonor Christ. And if we have to choose between doing good to the poor, we don't always have to make this choice. But if we have to choose between doing something good for the poor and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, there is one of those that must take a priority. And if you think that what Mary did was lavish, uncalled for, unjustified, and a wrong use of that perfume, then your priorities are just as out of whack as Judas's. Because the best use of that perfume in this situation was to pour it out upon Jesus. Because he is the greater thing than even doing good to the poor. And I want you to notice that comment, you'll always have the poor with you. Now that's not a, that is a statement of what life will always be like as long as we're in this world. We have to remember something. As long as human nature is human nature, we're going to have poor people. 
Because some people are born rich, some people are born poor. Some people are born with skills, other people are born with no skills. Uh, some people are born with talents and abilities and intellectual capacities, and other people are not. Some people are born blessed, some people aren't. God does not give to everybody equally. So as long as human nature is what human nature is, and people have the freedom to do what they will do with their time, their talents, and their treasure, you're going to have poor people among you. We're never going to be able to get rid of the poor. Capitalism cannot get rid of the poor. Communism cannot get rid of the poor. Socialism, fascism, feudalism, government programs, the war on poverty, none of those things can just get rid of the poor. We will always have poor people with us. And it's not a statement. That's not a political statement. That's a reality statement. It's just the way it is. So we ought to do good to the poor while we have opportunity to do good to the poor, but never thinking that the church or the government or a government program or anything that you and I do is ever going to permanently get rid of the poor. It can't be done. We'll always have the poor with us. But we need to use our time, talents, and our treasures in a way that honors Jesus Christ most. And that's one of the lessons that we learned here from this passage. Now, our time is gone, but our text is not. And so we will return next week to the, the shallow seeking of the crowd and the scheming of the religious leaders. And uh, then we will take a look at introducing this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, beginning of verse 12. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for the reminder from your word of the value of Christ and who he is. We thank you that you have given to us such a Savior. He is worth everything that we could ever offer to, to him and do for him. And all of our service and all of our sacrifice, all of our giving and all of our praise is, is nothing compared to what he deserves and we thank you for that reminder. We also thank you for the warning about covetousness. Guard our hearts from that, we pray. And keep us safe from the temptation to always value people and things and everything that we have just in terms of money. We pray that you would guard us from covetousness so that we might never be tempted to do the things that Judas did and that we might never undervalue Christ and overvalue the things of this world and this life. Thank you for all that you have given to us and committed to us. And we pray that you give us grace to Rightly use all that we have for your glory, as that is our central concern, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.